3: Welcome to a special bonus episode of From Scratch. I'm your host, Michael Rollman. While we developed season two, we wanted to release some unused material. During our reporting for this show, we've gathered great interviews that we've had to cut for time. Here, we're sharing complete discussions with some of our amazing guests, some chefs, some from outside the professional kitchen. In this extended interview, I sat down with Dr. Krishnendu Ray, Chris to his friends, a brilliant thinker and writer about cooking and culture. He's currently Department Chair of Nutrition and Food Studies at New York University and the author of The Migrant's Table, Curried Cultures, Globalization, Food, and South Asia, and the Ethnic Restaurateur. We had a wide-ranging conversation about authenticity, cooking and its role in social connection, versus isolation, sensory identity, why there are food fads, and a theory of what really drove Anthony Bourdain and why he mattered to so many people. But first, we tried to get to the bottom of a tricky and loaded word, ethnic. What exactly does ethnic mean? Well, um, ethnic restaurants. Let's, yes. You know, let's talk about that word, uh-huh. ethnic. Good word, bad word? You yeah, know, it's a, it's an interesting
4: word. Um, it's, uh, uh, I would say it comes into play by about the 1950s in American culture. Really? Especially in journalism. And it's a way to think about cultural difference without falling into the trap of race. So there's a sense that there's white and then there's black. And then there are ethnic people who are kind of somewhat in between, uh, and the interesting thing is some white people uh, are considered ethnic, some lose their ethnicity. Give you an example, Italians are considered ethnic, and uh, they have stopped uh, appearing to be ethnic. Uh, the National Restaurant Association has a study from the year 2000, and it says, well, Uh, Italian food has become so ubiquitous today that it's no longer ethnic. Uh, And so it has become kind of normalized, naturalized, while uh, it doesn't say that uh, yet about Chinese food. But if you say go to smaller markets, uh, media markets, say not like New York or not like uh, the West Coast markets. So if you go to New Orleans, uh, people still classify Italian food uh, as ethnic. Really? And, and that's a interesting. So so the story is about you know, what is this classification? What did it do? Uh, how did it come into play about the 1950s into the 60s clearly? And I would say it is in fact dying now uh, in places like New York City and L.A. where most people say who are interested in food, foodies, who are interested in various kinds of food culture, find ethnic to be too big a category and too flat a category where you can put say um uh, bhutanese food nepali food and vietnamese food and say chinese food all together so most people uh, have stopped kind of using that category now so yeah I, in a sense um i would say in the the in, in the big cities now The idea of something, some food being ethnic is slowly going out of fashion. The analogy is this. Think about the way the word Negro changed, Mm -hmm. okay? It was a normal descriptive term. Then at some point, it became a term that was kind of no longer uh, the term that was going to be used. It became black or it became African American in some contexts. Or think about the way... Native Americans, Indians, indigenous people, mm-hmm. usually it is associated with some relationship of power in any of these words you will see. Huh. Okay? So ethnicity in some ways is, uh, is about ethnic food, is the food of the people who are not fully foreign, but not us. Hmm. whatever that us category is, and whatever that foreign category the is. In-between. So like French, the in-between. So that's the category. And usually it is the in-between who have migrated in into American society. So to give you a typical example, who like French food,
3: mm-hmm.
4: was never considered ethnic. It was foreign, it was exotic, but it was high class, upper class. So this is the second thing about ethnicity, is that ethnic food is supposed to be the food of mostly poor working class migrants. Uh, and so that is one of the categories uh, one of the problems of the categories now mm-hmm. and why people are kind of beginning uh, kind of to stop using it. So you can't really have really high priced ethnic food. That's the presumption. <laughs> yes, that's been the historical presumption. So if you if it's very, even now if most people if you say high priced Uh, people have a sense that it can be authentic. Uh, So if you're charging more than 10, 12 bucks for anything, uh, it can be uh, authentic, uh, ethnic. So there's a kind of a funny trap there, you know? So you can cook very good food. And my argument is that kind of sets up a limitation to what kind of ingredients you're going to use, what kind of skill you're going to bring. Because the price includes basically... The three major thing, which is rent, which is huge in any city. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, the kind of ingredients you're going to put into mm-hmm. it and the kind of labor costs. Okay. That's why if you trap ethnic food or food of the ethnics as cheap food, you, it is very dip- difficult to break out of those mm-hmm. barriers of good food. Mm- <clears throat> so that's what the book is about. And my thinking has been, uh, 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 about this category called ethnic Food and ethnic restaurant term.
3: So, if you want to do high-end <laughs> ethnic food, you're 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 fucked. <laughs> Or, you, you are, in a sense,
4: no one is going to call it ethnic. So, you, by the way, at that level, you can you can use you have to use other categories. Like, you can say. Fusion used to be, but fusion is one of those things that insiders think it is kind of a shameful category, though I would say a lot of people are doing fusion food, so you can pull Vietnamese elements with French elements together, Mm -hmm. okay? But you're not going to call it fusion, but outsiders will think about it as fusion. So yes, so in a sense, it becomes very difficult to stay within this category of ethnic, and I think do very good food, which is going to be expensive, either at the level of skill or at the level
3: of the uh, ingredient. Yeah. What can you tell us about the hierarchy of taste in America? Yeah. So I use the uh, hierarchy of
4: taste as a phrase to think about how American notions of what is good food and what is expensive food has changed over time. And it's it's a fascinating story. So if you say, first look at, uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. So if you read the New York Times 1870, 1872, there's a lot of discussion about German food. And German food is this food that is has kind of f- weird things like uh, schnitzel. And it says, and the New York Times describes saying, it's in fact, it's just a veal cutlet uh, with a weird name called uh, schnitzel. And uh, it is all, you can eat veal schnitzel for 15 cents, okay, in 1872. So uh, today, if for instance, you don't think about German food when you think about a kind of ethnic food. So here are two things that's going on. Remember I said before, Ethnic is a category that's invented in the eighteen in the nineteen fifties and 1960s. Was the word itself actually? It, yeah. So ethnic means ethnos uh, from the Greek and uh, which means people, any people. So uh-huh. legitimately, it can be used for <clears throat> any people. Okay. So that's one way of uh, using it. But it's
3: more contemporary meaning began
4: more in nineteen fifties. And food was never categorized as ethnic. So, like the example I'm giving you, German food would have been considered foreign and it 's slightly considered weird but cheap it 's all those categories that has uh, uh, that we subsequently come to see as a kind of ethnic so German food is richly discussed as this a kind of uh, analog to what we would, after 1950s, call ethnic food. Uh, it's exciting. There's a slight element of slumming. Uh, there's a slight element of disdain, but excitement. Okay, And there's a lot of discussion about German, for instance, uh, beer halls. The Anglos in New York City are very kind of suspicious of the Germans because the German beer halls up and down Bowery they find that children are there, women are there, because the Germans drink with the family. Mm-hmm. Very different from, say, the Irish or the Anglo right. pub culture, tavern culture, which was a much more masculine culture. Okay? So that there's a sense of this weird people with a bit of weird culture. Some of it is exciting, but most of it we should not do. I think a lot of that changes in American history post-civil rights movement, where basically I think two things happens that radically changes our point of view. One, what the civil rights movement does is basically delegitimizes disdain and disgust towards other people's culture. Okay, There's there, it goes underground, uh, and it's coming back up in some different ways. It comes back up at different points of time but what it does is polite people in polite society never classify anyone's culture as inferior or disgusting especially their food as disgusting that's a radical change in american culture and in fact that's not true about say india the other the other culture i come from i spent my first half of my life in India, second half of my life in the US. In India, the upper class and the middle class can look at poor people's food and look at lower caste food and look at what are called scheduled castes and tribes and expressly express disgust about their food, Mm. okay? That used to be the case in American culture. That became delegitimized. And the second thing that changed was what, what sociologists have come to call cultural omnivorousness. That in a sense today, say if you listen to music, you're expected to listen to a range of music from, say, European classical, jazz, hip-hop, uh, pop, uh, etc. Uh, uh, and uh, in fact, as your education goes up and, the num- and your income goes up, you become more omnivorous. You, re- you listen to all kinds of music and you never say any music is inferior. Okay. Mm. That did not used to be the case before the 1950s, basically, where people would explicitly talk about the inferiority of jazz as kind of a degraded European classical music. Okay. Mm. And so, so kind of these two things, the change in the politics of culture, which is the civil rights movement, and the other is, um, this uh, change in what I call the birth of mass consumer society. Where today, in a sense, uh, you are supposed to be consuming all kinds of music and consuming all kinds of food to be considered a legitimate, say, uh, consumer or even uh, specifically a connoisseur. Mm -hmm. So kind of those things. So what what I look at is how different cuisines have – some cuisines have climbed the social ladder. Italian being a terrific example, okay. right? Italian is a very good example because, in fact, Italian is one of those cuisines in American history that falls from the top, uh, uh, flattens out, and then climbs back. Is climbing back up right now. Mm-hmm. What I mean by it is this: say with Thomas Jefferson. Uh, who in some ways brings in macaroni and cheese, okay? <laughs> and there's a sense that it is, this is a Italian thing. It's part of the travel through the Mediterranean and bringing in macaroni, which is kind of a generic name for any pasta at that point of time. And And in this case, he was specifically identified as parmesan cheese, okay? Mm-hmm. Often they would be registered in restaurants as slightly Frenchified, uh, parmesan as a slightly frenchified mac and cheese. So that was considered very high high culture. Okay, say let's say around 1800, okay. okay, approximately. What is fascinating is this this is what happens is from about 1880 onwards, you have millions of poor Italians, mostly southern Italians, coming in. And what you see is this astonishing disdain towards Italian culinary culture. From 1880 about the 1940s, it is seen as the food of slightly inferior people who eat all this spicy food. By the way, um, uh, nutritionists and, and kind of uh, all kinds of reformers, progressive era reformers, look at Italians and say, oh, they have a terribly inferior food culture. They eat all this pasta, they eat all this garlic, very garlicky, by the way, it's described as, with all these spices and inferior foods like all these weird greens. That you get nothing out of. This is partly remember, nutritional knowledge is also changing at this point of time, hasn't caught up. And, uh, most importantly, that is what makes them thirsty for all this alcohol, wine. And so to, we have to cure them of their food, to cure them of their, uh, uh alcoholic tendencies, we have to cure them of their food, and we have to change them into basically a kind of a white sauce, bland food people. Okay? Thankfully, they fail to do that. And, Over the next, say, two generations, as Italians move up from a working-class population to a middle-class professional, they become politicians, they enter the uh, movie business. For instance, they're very important players in the movie business. Um, And uh, they become culturally visible. And you begin to see the slow shift nutritional knowledge begins to catch up with the Mediterranean diet, arguing that, in fact, the Mediterranean diet uh, may be, in fact, terrific for people. And by about the 1970s, you begin to see a revaluation of Italian food. So, my argument is that poor people's food are often seen as inferior by people. It has nothing to do with Uh, The food. Mm. It has to do with the attitude towards class and race. That's what the whole hierarchy of taste argument is. So I look at the German case. I look at the Italian case. Or if you look at the Japanese case, you have... I was going to ask you about Japanese. Japanese case is kind of... If you look at around... See, there's a beautiful study of Japanese in Hawaii, which is where we have in Hawaii and on the West Coast, we have the first Japanese coming in as immigrants and relatively poor immigrants. And around 1900, if you talk to Japanese, and there's a beautiful study done by a sociologist in Hawaii... The Japanese are saying, yes, we know our food is inferior. The children learn in school that they should be drinking more dairy and we should be eating more protein to make us big and strong like white people. And, uh, but you see, I have a bad habit. I'm of that generation. So my children's uh, habits are going to become more American uh, and my habit is going to stay Japanese and their health is going to improve. This is about 1900 people are talking about. Hmm. And of course, Japan uh, becomes an enemy in the Second World War, just as the Germans, by the way. And the German example is a fascinating example where, for instance, I'm just going to go back quickly to the Mm -hmm. German case, which is fascinating, where uh, uh, Germans are in fact uh, kind of uh, looked at as the enemy. And at that point of time, by the way, the second most important uh, language taught, the second language taught in most American schools was German. And on the cusp of the wow. uh, uh, Second World War. German was to the 1930s and 40s in the US what Spanish uh, is to the US today. Really? Okay. The most dominant language, uh, by the way, long before that, Ben Franklin was worried that in fact he was going to be swamped by the Germans because he was in Pennsylvania, remember? And right. who, who we come to identify as the Pennsylvania Dutch. Who are really the Deutsch. Okay. And so German kind of this antipathy towards Germans is going to turn into this kind of massive pressure on, uh, on kind of naming of foods. That's when the naming will change from things like Frankfurter to hot dog to a way to Americanize these names. And Germans are going to be in some ways written out of the American script But my argument is, in fact, most American food is Germanic food. Think about lagers and think about the cheese, think about hamburger, Mm. think, in fact, it is, It in some ways, German case is a very interesting case where what used to be, in some ways, a foreign ethnic marker, uh, in this case, in quotation marks, uh, uh, in some ways is made invisible by, in fact, most of us. By the way, most Americans, the largest so-called ethnic category of Americans are German-Americans. There are 50 million German-Americans today, okay? I'm one of them. Yes, exactly. And so the German case is an interesting case where it is both uh, suppressed, but also it becomes ubiquitous. Most American food, in the sense, is Germanic food with some differences, and I'll talk about it. The Japanese case, similarly, there's a repression of taste for Japanese things that works towards the sense that Japanese food is kind of inferior for inferior people, that begins to flip only in the 1980s once Japan emerges as a major economic power. And remember, I don't know whether you remember, that's the time Americans are talking about just-in-time production, how Japanese uh, capitalism is so much agile and more powerful. And And it's when sushi came into the market. Exactly, totally. And that is, and by the way, think about that, where sushi or Japanese food comes in is mostly midtown, even now, you go to in Manhattan, the the high-end Japanese restaurants are often in midtown because this is where the Japanese managers, who are now really highly valued, would eat okay and so sushi comes in and suddenly we begin to flip and of course by then also nutritional knowledge begins to catch up with things like fish and fermented food and you begin to say japanese food is the best food in the world <laughs> and then we re, we, inve- we see the data that they live one of the longest in the world so they must be doing something right so what i'm really interested in a hierarchy of taste is this question of how do americans how and why do americans change their mind about what is good to eat and what is not good to eat and how that has changed American history.
3: That's, uh, of course, fascinating and fascinates me because I think um, they don't use their common sense. They don't think for themselves. They are told that eggs are bad, therefore eggs are bad. They are fear of fat. Um, Across the board, it's ipso facto bad.
4: So I think that's, I would say my work as a sociologist is, like if you talk to an economist, it's about supply and demand. So the price is shaped by supply and demand. Mm -hmm. That is correct. But that's an abstract model, which is worked by taking time out of the model. As a sociologist, my work is how do people come to demand and why do people come to demand some things at certain prices and are unwilling to pay that, say, it is very difficult for most Americans today to pay hundred bucks for Indian food. You know, right. Even even kind of Danny Meyer figured that out uh, about tabla. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That he was saying any time there would there would be a recession tightening of purse, Americans at that level were willing to pay for French. We're willing to pay for Italian, but we're not willing to pay that kind of a price for Indian food. Uh, and you can say that about Thai. You can say that about Vietnamese. And and uh, you, we used to say that about Italian, and that's changing. And that's kind of for me that change over time of demand Mm -hmm. is the most fascinating story about American cuisines.
3: When we come back, Chris Ray dives into the murky waters of authenticity. What does it mean to make authentic food? What is borrowing? What is appropriating? And what does it mean for the future of cooking in America? As Chris notes, food is the way we incorporate the external world into ourselves. How does food affect our identity? Can't you say that we um, will now pay more money for authentic food? Um, Yes, there are two kinds of authenticity. Okay, okay? talk to me about it. Yeah,
4: so I think one kind of authenticity that we we are willing to pay for is in some ways to think of the chef as the artist, his signature, okay? Say a per se or a French laundry, okay, which is the idea of the perfect professional. Okay, which almost think about it, he is not supposed to the chef is not supposed to have any ethnic mark on him. It's just technique, and ingredient, and skill. Pure world of, in some ways, the world of the perfect ingredient with the best skill in the world. Okay, that's almost the opposite of the other sense of authenticity. Ethnicity, oh, sorry, authenticity. So the first sense of authenticity is linked to the signature of the artist, the way the way we look at, say, a per se, or say, we say, uh, a Rene Ratsapis restaurant, mm-hmm. restaurant, is that, is the chef there? Is this the chef's signature? Mm-hmm. Okay. And, um, and the other side of it is, if it is, say, an Indian restaurant, or say even a Mexican restaurant, and Mexican is a very interesting case, it's changing, is the idea that, is this someone's grandmother's cooking? It belongs, so the authenticity there is a test of belonging to a community, mm-hmm. okay? So, is in a sense, so in a sense, at the bottom end of the market, we test it by when we say use authenticity, we say how is it, how similar is it to when I went to Mexico and ate this in Puebla, or I went to Oaxaca and ate this. Is this similar? or Is that difference? That's what we are saying when we are uh, thinking about authenticity at the bottom end of the market. Hmm. At the higher end of the market, we are thinking about authenticity
3: as the sing- signature of the artist, in this case, the uh, the chef.
5: Mm-hmm.
3: I want to almost hold back on that, but Jonathan, my producer, and I just went to Oakland to talk mm-hmm. to um, a chef there who first went high-end French, mm-hmm. did exactly what you said, earned two Michelin stars, and then went back to his roots he felt well par- partly he felt guilty for abandoning where he came from and who he was mm. and i'm just curious about what you think about this model about what this guy did
4: yeah it's 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 fascinating i think that's happening with mexican food too mm-hmm. these are kind of a welling up of interest from the bottom but it is still the cheap and authentic taco right and you can't almost charge that much for a taco unless it's coming down say from a very high end mexican chef who is a friend of Rene Ratsapi. And there's that network at the top. Mm -hmm. I would say that's a network of about 500 to 1,000 people. It's a very small network.
3: That's a small network. It's a very small
4: network. And in that network, there are some connections being made okay, where you're beginning to see that, for instance, where aspects of Mexican food and Peruvian food is entering that discussion. Brazilian food is entering that discussion because of Alex Atala, because of Rene Recipe's work with some Mexican chef, and because of kind of this kind of, I would almost call it peer review. Mm -hmm. It's like professors. Mm -hmm. Peer review amongst 500 uh, 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 chefs, and uh, and evaluators and journalists and restaurant critics. You can enter the world through that. And I think this uh, uh, the person you're talking about, the chef you were talking yeah, about, yeah, Chef James, se- chef, Call chef, me. Uh, chef James, who uh, kind of as as a as a um, Michelin star chef, it's a it's a signature of that you have really arrived in that peer ve- uh, peer review evaluation. Once you do that, then you are allowed a little more freedom. Mm. to mess around and play with other categories of food. And especially if you're not basically a French or an Italian, uh, a very high-end chef, you'll eventually, there'll be some pressure in you to go back to your roots. You you see that uh, with David Chang, for instance. Mm. You know, he had to first play in the French domain. Mm -hmm. Then he did a very interesting thing, which is very unusual and interesting. He goes off to Japan. You know, and I personally think Japan played a role in David Chang's generation, what French used to play. interesting in, in, before that. And so and I almost think that today in the in the kind of the top of the field, uh, French, Italian, Japanese uh, are playing a, a kind of the most defining role of what it entails good food. and Japanese, especially in plate presentation, shapes of plates, use of empty space. You know, Mm -hmm. and that absolute minimalism that you have come to expect that a green bean should taste exactly like green bean or asparagus and we should not mess and complicate it, okay? Mm -hmm. Very different, by the way, from Indian aesthetics. In Indian aesthetics, uh, in a sense, if you have a piece of meat that tastes like meat, that means it is not good, (laughs) okay? So it's a very different – It's it's got to have a
3: curry. It's got to have a sauce. You have a
4: sauce. It has – there the the, the complexity comes through uh, uh, lots of flavors, Okay, and layering of flavors. And in in the Western world, haute cuisine world, and Japanese world, and that aspect of it, there's kind of a simplification of it. So, uh, so what we are seeing in the world today, I think, in the food world, is things are climbing up from the bottom a bit in interesting ways. Mm-hmm. And you see, like, say, the New York Times, if you read uh, recently there'll be Nigerian food. There's recently been a case Nigerian food. And that that is Liga Michan's work uh, about it. And then, uh, so people are beginning to break out of, uh, because of the omnivorousness, because of the Mm -hmm. eaters and eaters are eating widely. So they have to, in some ways, almost follow them out Mm -hmm. of, I would say, follow them of the French, Italian, uh, Japanese ghetto Mm -hmm. now. Uh, and, and, And that's one thing that's going on. The other thing that's going on it's a bit, again, like music. Mm, uh, at the upper end of it, what are the sh- top chefs intrigued by? If they're intrigued by Peruvian produce, and there's a chef there, a Peruvian chef, who can play with you, okay? If there's a Mexican chef who can play with you. And so they begin to get s- absorbed into the upper end of the circuit. And that then comes down, where you will have, like, say, uh, um, uh, you can be a French chef, but you might start playing a bit with Mexican
3: ingredients and Mexican techniques. You can do that. You can. Okay, do well, that. here's a great example. Yeah. And we're going to bring up the big bugaboo, yeah. which is cultural appropriation. You mentioned French laundry. Thomas Keller yeah. opened La Calenda uh, in Youngville, down the street from his French laundry in Duchamp. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he brought in um, one of those chefs uh, who's from Oaxaca. Uh-huh. And that's okay, I suppose. I'd like to know your thoughts on cultural appropriation. I mean, we've got a um, high-end Thai, Laotian (laughs) chef Mm -hmm. who went high-end French and then could create Hawking Bird, Hawking Fair in Oakland. Then we have Thomas Keller, American-born, traditional French-style chef, now doing Mexican food. Mm. I think – this is part of a symptom of this kind of
4: churning in American culinary culture, which is really exciting. You know, it's, it's again, has happened in music before. Mm-hmm. Think about the role of African-Americans in American music and think about that discussion around it. How much of it is exemplifying, how much of it is borrowing, and how much of it is stealing. Okay, so that is that conversation that is heated up now. So I I personally think, it's a good symptom of the transformation of the American uh, culinary scene where lots of people's food are entering the discussion. And a lot of people like me, like uh, I would say what, what people would call gourmands or foodies of color are entering the discussion. That is why the argumentation is heating up. So in a sense, for me, the fight, uh, almost my, I look at it in a meta way that the fight over uh, appropriation is a sign that a lot of interesting non-Anglo food is entering the discussion. The non-traditional elite food, including French food, is entering the discussion. And a lot of people of, I would say, gourmands of color are moving in. And in fact, there's a bit of a shouting match going on. So for me, it's a symptom of change in the field. And it is very exciting. And it is basically what you point to absolutely correctly is this it is always a question of power it's about this question of power and cultural product mm-hmm. and I didn't point to that you pointed it out <laughs> and so, like think about but you're right yeah and, and think about the way uh, like hip hop I mean it's is fascinating it's, a, it's mm-hmm. a beautiful analogy say one part of it comes out of Bronx uh, poor uh, black boys, almost, right? Uh, from the, one of the poorest parts of the city. They're often uh, Caribbean migrants. The fact that American culture is going to throw this artifact into this mix, and that's going to be pulled in and so dominant today that white boys in in uh, in rich suburbia, the only language they understand is the language of hip hop. that's radical, that's very American, that is very democratizing. But with that will come, now who's making most of the money out of that hip-hop culture, Mm. right? Which is about who owns it. And there'll always be this argument that when, before it was commercialized, uh, poor black folks used to own it and run it. Now, all kinds of players, including, by the way, black men, uh, are playing a very important role in the marketing of it. So you will lose something and you will gain something. What you gain is at the meta level. What you gain is enriching of American culture. And what you lose is there is going to be some who will win monetarily and some who will lose monetarily. And a lot of them initially are going to be people like, in this case, white chefs, because they have a network. And their network lets them two things, allows them to borrow money. Mm -hmm. at rates at which it is not that easy for most people. I mean, by the way, it's not that easy to get money for uh, opening a restaurant, no matter who you are. But if you're a white celebrity chef, it's easier for you to raise the money. Mm -hmm. You have the right network. The second, you have the right network in terms of what sociologists call cultural capital, meaning you know uh, every restaurant reviewer in the country knows who you are. So whatever you do, you're going to get attention for it. Okay, that is unlikely to be the case if you are coming uh, from the bottom up, okay? So that's the unfairness that people feel and complain about. But in a sense, but I think what people, in fact, lose sight of, which is I'm really excited about, is is two things. That this is a symptom of the t- strength of American culinary culture. It's democratization. I think American food culture changes every 40 years, because new people come in bringing their food and that's a terrific thing and it's a good thing for American culture and a good thing for most of the people of color who are now making a living through these things.
3: Okay? Why is it a good thing? So it's a good What's thing. What's good
4: about it? What's good about it is A, food is more interesting. <laughs> the food, a lot more ingredients, a lot more techniques. I mean, think about, think about I'm expecting what we will learn from the Chinese, for instance, as Chinese move up in the social ladder, is recognizing various kinds of texture that play an important role. Like when you have, think about when you have chopped jellyfish with a little uh, sesame oil in it and quickly stir-fried. It's a, partly the pleasure is that pleasure of that crunchy texture of it. We will learn from the Chinese what we learn from the Japanese, which is, for instance, naming umami. Without Japanese food, without research, Japanese research on it, we A would have never, in fact, gotten to the science of umami, okay? My sense is that horizon is going to be pushed further. So more things are going to enter in terms of ingredients, in terms of skill. Or think about uh, use of chilies and use of avocados. You know, they have become, when I came to the U.S., it was very, this is 1989, okay? I was in a university town it was impossible to get chilies uh, and avocados, okay, in a small university town, okay? Mm-hmm. And think about what it did in terms of limiting my palate. And It, it took me a decade to even like avocados, because I was not used to it. It's, it's not, in a sense, my first exposure to it. I said, what is this thing? This is bland, you know, uninteresting. Mm-hmm. So I had to go back to avocado. Everybody else was eating avocado and then develop a palate for it. I think what that kind of new ingredients, new techniques, uh, what they do is increase the repertoire, basically, mm-hmm. of what you can
3: play with. Okay? But also you didn't have chilies, which you were expecting probably and Absolutely. used to. Mm-hmm. So how was that? How was lacking something that was part of your heritage, your cultural persona? You didn't have any of that. How did that affect you? It was terrible.
4: It was in a sense, meaning that it was a sense of an absence that could not be fulfilled by anything else. So eventually, for instance, I found jalapenos. But jalapenos have a very different kind of a heat and a flavor than say in India, what we are used to is what would be equivalent of say Thai chilies, Mm -hmm. okay? And of course, that itself is an interesting story. Chilies, of course, are new world. They go to the old world and they are everywhere. And think about Thai food without chilies, Indian food without chilies, right? It's crazy, Mm -hmm. and which is a kind of partly what makes food exciting is this kind of a cross fertilization of different ingredients from different parts of the world and different kinds of techniques. And in my case, I had to find analogs for it. You know, And the analog was the closest analog was jalapenos, but they never gave me that satisfaction. So I would come all the way to New York City to go to Patel Brothers so that I can buy my chilies, (laughs) okay, and then go back to SUNY Binghamton where I was doing my doctoral work and then use it and kind of cook with it. But the upside of that, that absence and hunger – was an attempt to find analogies, attempt to work with it. And for me, that drove me deeper and deeper into cooking. When I first came from India, in fact, I was a lower middle class Indian kid. Being a male, I never, I did not know any, uh, anything about cooking, you know? And so partly is this nostalgia and partly this absence that I could not find this food in the most of the cheap Indian, uh, kind of Bangladeshi-run Indian joints that were in this town. There were three of them, okay? was none of the food was... No good. No good at all. None of this food was comparable to home cooking. They were trying to please an American palate, I suppose. Yeah, and and again, it's, again, low skill, you know, uh, relatively poor ingredients because no one is willing to pay more than eleven right. ninety nine, and so basically these are mostly cooked by people who don't otherwise cook. <laughs> you know, right. and so for me was that was not good enough, so I had to kind of uh, kind of work on that. So this absence, in some ways, became the memory of that absence. So red chili flakes didn't do it for you? Red chili flakes didn't do it. I mean, some things works well with red chili flakes, like a a chard or something, right? But a lot of everyday, like my mom say, uh, uh, a fish curry with a mustard sauce, you know, fresh ground mustard, a little bit of ginger, a little bit of garlic, and a lot of green chilies, okay? And you just basically almost like steam it, Mm -hmm. okay? And so that was just, A, impossible to get it anywhere. No one was doing it in terms of an Indian restaurant. And second, n- n- not, not the, any of the red chilies would not play that role of replacing that, that green, slightly citrusy uh, kind of uh, the green chili uh, taste.
3: More complex, more interesting, mm-hmm. uh, just unique. Absolutely. And what were you missing by not having those ingredients? So pa- part of it
4: was this kind of... Um, um, missing my food, uh, missing the ability to make my food and, and linked with it.
3: And therefore, what were you missing?
4: Exactly. Really what, what I was missing was the kind of a sensory memory of another place, you know, sensory memory of my personhood. So in some ways, what, what's really missing was a sense of, because think about food, right? Is food is the way we incorporate the external world into ourselves which becomes us. That's what culture is all about. There's no other object we absorb like that, you know? Mm-hmm. So our sense of personhood anywhere in the world is built on these habitual everyday palates, okay? And flavors and senses. The way you think about all the senses we use in, uh, in eating a food, say in this case, uh, 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 fish, uh, say trout with uh, mustard sauce with green chilies right is the it's it's the it's the palate it's deep inside us okay it's inside us the the smell the nose especially retronasal smell okay and of course touch i i uh, i still do when i am eating indian food i still use my fingers directly because forks feel like a cold metallic barrier to mm-hmm. that taste okay uh, and uh, uh while chopsticks are another kind of uh, access to it most probably very difficult to eat noodles without either fork or chopstick. That's why I'm in, by the way, in Indian, Indian cuisine, there's hardly any mm-hmm. uh, noodles. Ah. Okay. And, but again, this kind of, this whole, what you can almost call what uh, an, an anthropologist, uh, David Sutton, calls uh, synesthesia, how all your senses are pulling together uh, and pulling together into some sense of personhood. And that personhood, remember, is my relationship to other substance, and my relationship to other people. And that's what food is about. Okay? Food eaten in good company. Or say, think about a glass of wine. Um, I enjoy a glass of wine by myself, but enjoying a bottle of wine with a couple of friends, it's almost a totally different thing.
3: It's a completely different
4: Different thing. thing. And that's, that's, I think, where a lot of Western aesthetic theory misses the point. A lot of wine tasting, connoisseurship misses the point that we're trying to find the right taste in the right taste wheel, okay? If only we can identify the aromatics, you know, and then, then of course, the year and the vintage and the grape, we are on top of it. What often it misses is that context, context of a substance that is changing our mind, by the way, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, through intoxication. Mm-hmm. That's why it's particularly, uh, kind of, particularly powerful but in the company of others. And so that is what food, uh, what was missing, what was my loss, was in a sense almost a loss of personhood embedded in a series of relationship to other
3: species and people. When we come back, Dr. Ray discusses isolation versus connection, Richard Wrangham's book, Catching Fire, How Cooking Made Us Human, excessive individualism the real reason for food fads and the lessons of our friend tony bourdain
1: this is it your moment this is your time to make your comeback with purdue global when you come back with a purdue global degree you create opportunity for yourself your family and your future
3: Goes much further than the fact that food brings us together. I mean, I've always liked that. That, as you say, drinking a glass of wine—by it's a perfect example. Drinking a glass of wine by yourself, a great glass of wine, it's a pleasure, but it's solitary, and there's after a point, it's
4: yeah, it's a mark a f- of a mark of an alcoholic, <laughs> <laughs> right? It becomes dysfunctional after a point. It's good yeah. to I enjoy wine mm-hmm. and by myself sometimes, but it's like that sociality. Mm-hmm. You know, If you take sociality out of the food, I mean, that's why in my department, nutrition and food studies, I think our insight is this, don't worry about the nutrients, unless, of course, you're sick in a particular way. Mm-hmm. You need to pay attention to certain nutrients, exclude them, include them. But otherwise, in general, eat everything in moderation, drink everything in moderation in company of other people. So you talk because you talk, you don't stuff your mouth. Okay, and so the depth of pleasure brings satiety sooner than you say if you drink uh, a gallon of soda. And that's one of the big problems: we're drinking uh, all our uh, calories and in uh, in isolation. So we're never happy. Mm-hmm. We're trying to fill that gap by stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay, instead of that, use stuff to connect with other people and sociality. If you can do that, that's probably the best advice one can give as a nutritionist to a person.
3: Nice. Eat with others. Uh, great advice. Perfect advice. Um, we drink a gallon of soda by ourselves. We eat in our cars. We go through the drive through and are isolated. And in, in,
4: we are hungry for that connection and keep eating more.
3: Yeah, yeah. In we more try, isolation. And we are never We try, to, we try to fill it and cannot.
4: Yeah, it's kind of a funny way of loss. We're trying to fill <clears throat> it up with stuff.
3: You know, I'm sure you're familiar with the uh, book Catching Fire, How Cooking Made mm-hmm. Us Human. And one of the great points that he makes is that food socialized us. Um, you, couldn't, you couldn't be an asshole or you wouldn't get any food. You, you had to work. We had to work together. And then once we worked together, then we would share the food. Um, I even talked to him about this. He said, yes, that we weren't shoving pounds of roughage sort of throats. It allowed us to uh, develop the nuanced vocal anatomy required for yes. complex language. And we would do this around food. So yes. it's very, it makes anthropomorphic sense. That, Absolutely. And we would do well to heed what made us human in the first place. And that's Richard Rangham's
4: work. Isn't yeah. you? And, and it's kind of fantastic about how it changes our physiology. It changes our brain chemistry. It changes that connectivity. And at the end of it, just like think about food as a language. If food is a language. Can you speak a language on your own? You can't. You have to talk to someone else. And it is that sociality and that collaborative action. I think in some ways, part of a price we are paying for is excessive individualism right now. Mm-hmm. And then just me consuming stuff, which I think is right, which I personally think is that's another problem of what is often called nutritionism or
3: all these fads. Yeah, talk about that a little bit. I get kind of crazy about all yeah, this. Yeah,
4: these fads are is, is an attempt, I think, it's kind of a desperate attempt,
3: A, to have a rule.
4: Okay. Because many of us now, especially in the large cities, often do not have a kind of a social rule about who to eat with, what to eat when. We can eat anything because the economy brings it to us, anything at any time and with no one at all. So there are no rules. There are no rules. No, no rules. And what that creates that some sociologists call is a sense of kind of a disorientation, enemy. Okay. And how do you then fix it? You fix it by making up rules. Okay. So that you're only going to have pomegranate. Okay. You've heard (laughs) that it's good for you. So you eat only that or a lot of that and all these cleanses you have. There's some amount of kind of work. If you drink enough, if there's enough liquids in it, and if you have enough roughage in it, it'll do you some amount of good. But we don't need to go through a cleanse for a a diet uh, to be in fact a cleansing. Uh, a standard diet is very cleansing, okay? And it's kind of driven by this hunger for rule where we have basically this omnivorousness is eat anything at any time uh, and it's all about an individual question. By the way, it's a funny way where we, we have individually a lot more rules now and socially very no few rules, rules <laughs> you know? I think it is good to bring back some social rules uh, about which, which which Richard Rangham's work points to which allows us to do a little more collaborative work, which is also we see, by the way, in our political system, which is inability to collaborate because Mm. we have become so hyper committed to our individual, even it's an ethical view or an aesthetic view, that we are not allowing ourselves to engage with others and develop a collaborative view of ourselves. I think it is symptomatic of what we have done in the domain of food is what we are doing in the domain
3: of politics too. You know, you start out this conversation so optimistic and so – I thought, God, he just loves humanity and it's all good. And now uh, we get to America and it's politics and it's food and our cleanses and our paleo diets and our pescatine diets mm-hmm. or whatever they are. I, I don't know. I've never liked the diets, but it's um, – I've never heard it said that it's because we have anything available – anything and everything to, available to us. At all times. And so we need some rules. Otherwise, it's sort of anarchy. Absolutely. Who's to make those rules? Exactly. So you can make it individually,
4: like we're going about now. I have a million rules. And when you invite me, I'll tell you all the things I don't eat, all the things I might eat, all the things that I'm sensitive to. Okay? Or you could have a kind of a broader rule, like you, you have in kind of most religious communities, for instance, which is this. I can have my rules at home, but when you invite me, okay, whatever you give me to eat, I'll eat. Mm-hmm. And by the way, that you can also make it a religious rule. A Buddha's rule was that he said you should be a vegetarian. Okay, but if you are a, a, a guest and and a host offers you anything, the host offers you, including meat, is absolutely fine for you to eat because at that moment, sociality trumps your mm-hmm. individual uh, kind of your individual ethical choices. We have inverted that in the American society now. All of us have a huge number of individual rules very few rules of sociality, you know? And I think one can, we probably will not be able to go back, obviously, from this moment of hyper-individuality, but we have to sacrifice a bit of our individuality
3: for more sociality. How do you account for the fact, then, given this uh, vast individuality, this sort of Mm hyper-individuality, and the fact that perhaps our most uh, most, uh, gifted food journalist... Uh, And perhaps one of the most, as his biographer said, and I don't um, think he's wrong, one of the most admired men in America we knew only after he committed suicide, Mm. Tony Bourdain, um, was beloved for eating everything. Mm. He was beloved for taking all that culture in. Um, All the people beloving him are those very isolated people. Is there a contradiction there? Excellent question. And I think there might be,
4: in some ways, isolation here is on a different register, okay? And so for I I saw it as, of course, after the fact. I've just met him. I met him like three times, I think, individually. Very friendly guy, very nice guy. And I think his hunger, his omnivorousness was a bit of a symptom of an attempt to reach out and connect. Mm-hmm. Okay, from that isolation. So for him, what we saw was, in some ways, the other side of the attempt—the compensation for it. In some ways, I'm—I'm I'm just arguing it as a sociologist, mm-hmm. not as a psychologist. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, because of course I don't know him individually. I don't know his psyche. Uh, I see it as kind of a symptom of this—this uh, this hunger, this quest for new. Oh, by the way, that's the other side of it. Uh, I'll give you an example. My parents. Mm-hmm. My parents are both about 80 years old. Uh, They live in a small town in east coast of India. They more or less eat the same food every day for the last, Seventy years at least, and I kind of since I've been born. About the last fifty years, I know they probably eat about
3: the same five, six, seven things. What's a what's a? To give us a daily menu. Yeah, so a uh, uh,
4: breakfast would be uh, homemade chapati and Bengali. It's called roti, uh, and uh, maybe some sautéed green vegetables with Bengali five spice Bengali five spice would have fenugreek, uh, cumin in it, a little, very little, and. Uh, 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 onion seed and fennel in it and a kind of so five kind of spices sautéed quickly and a cup of tea. Okay. Lunch would be rice or handmade chapati again uh, called roti. And uh, uh, my mother has, is uh, totally vegetarian now because she's a kind of a believer, uh, a deep vel- believer in religion, and none of her, her children are that religious. So she compensates by, in fact, fasting. OK, and so remember, in this case, her prayer is a bit like buying insurance. OK, and she does it. And uh, so she has given up basically all meat and fish, but she would cook fish. Or
3: because of you. Because of me. <laughs> <laughs> You're responsible for your mother's exactly. weight loss.
4: Exactly. And of course, that's a very, by the way, Indian Hindu way of responding to adversity is to sacrifice stuff. I mean, Gandhi was kind of a, kind of a terrific example of that. So she would cook, say, fish or meat, goat meat in India. We are Bengalis, and um, and only 7% of Bengalis are vegetarian. And by the way, that's another thing. Most Indians are also not vegetarian, though, though many Hindus are vegetarian. In all, about 35% of Indians are vegetarian. So we are one of those groups. We are Hindus, and we are non-vegetarian. But in India, non-vegetarian mostly means you are eating fish and you're eating goat meat most probably. Mm-hmm. Okay, so mom would cook fish or or a meat curry, mostly fish, a small piece of fish, okay, uh, in a sauce and a side of green, either with rice or chapati for lunch, and then it'll be very similar at dinner. Okay. And meat or chicken, by the way, chicken used to be when I was growing up. I was going to
3: ask, where where does chicken
4: Yeah, chicken used to be the very expensive meat. And because of the new form of broiler chickens, chickens are becoming now the most cheapest form of meat. And in fact, now chicken would be eaten a little more often. But still, they would eat chicken about maximum once a week. -hmm. Okay. They would eat, my dad would eat a piece of fish maybe once a day. He's vegetarian for one day in solidarity with my mom. My mom eats just um, vegetables and dal. In India, uh, the most important source of protein is going to be the legumes. Okay. And so it's a complex carbohydrate core. It will be rice or, or, or a wheat in most cases, and and then a small piece of animal protein almost as a flavoring agent, okay? And then the real proteins you're getting, right, basically from the dal. And she would make a dal would be, say, with, say, masoor dal, okay, that pink dal, okay? And then she would put a little chonk, which is the Indian style, where you heat a bit of uh, uh, fat and put a little bit of cumin and dried red chilies, very high heat, and it smokes, and then you uh, top it off. We put it on top of the boiled dal, which is the, called the chonk, the technique mm-hmm. of adding flavor on top,
3: mm-hmm. right? It's a great technique. I it's love that. It's a fantastic technique. technique. Yeah. It's a very quick fix, yeah. in fact,
4: in terms of a technique. So she would do that. So there'll be a dal. So she would cook say, maybe six, seven, eight kinds of dal through the week, okay? But for an outsider, you look at dal, you say, well, it's dal, okay? For an insider, it's like, well, yesterday's dal is a little different from today's dal, okay? So if broadly maybe five to seven things she's cooking uh, 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 at any point of time. And so they eat the same things over and over again. They see the small internal variations, almost like a connoisseur of wine between this vintage and that vintage and this varietal and that varietal. Okay. We know it in the Western world with wine because that is part of this elite culture. Okay. What used to be elite culture now also middle class culture. Mm-hmm. We don't know that about dal because it's not part of most people's heritage mm-hmm. in the US today. And that's what I mean by this. That's other part of the structure, by the way. I will spend a lot of time trying to learn wine, but not so much about dal. Because in my social world, most people don't know about dal. So my reputation does not depend upon that. My reputation is staked on whether I know enough about wine, for instance.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to talk about dal a little bit. Uh-huh. <clears throat> yeah. And it's a great subject. Um, the 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 technique of, of flavoring a fat yes. with spices mm-hmm. and adding it to the top of the dal, seasoning from the top. top or yes. What do you call that? Chonk spell it okay so it's an, it's a transliteration
4: so okay. c h a u k Okay. okay. That's the Hindi word. But remember, Indian, every Indian is going to use different linguistic language group, like, uh, in Bengali, you know, it'll be, it's a slight variation of a chunk. Mm-hmm. Chunk. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, but if, say, if you go to, Ta- I have no idea what's the word in Tamil, for instance, mm-hmm. or the word in, I've heard, that, so. I've heard the, the, the term tempering. Tempering, yes. Tempering is a good translation. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. So that's the translation. So use a fat and use a kind of flavorful aromatics, like spices. Ginger you know? and garlic. Ginger and, and garlic and any of the dry spices, and no, exactly, cumin. and put it on top of it. I find it also kind of a very efficient use of the fat. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's a flavored fat that is spreading from the
3: top. Yeah, it's kind of it's beautiful. <laughs> it's really it's beautiful, and uh, and dal should be eaten more by more people. I think Absolute. it's good for you. Yeah, and it's good for the world. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. But coming back to the point, which is my
4: parents eat about the same food okay, uh, uh, over and over again. And they sometimes will go out and eat Chinese food, but their their sense is other people's food is for other people, okay? <laughs> and our this is our food, and this is perfect for us, okay? It's almost the opposite of this omnivorousness, hmm. okay? But it comes with a sense of groundedness in a community. And in the paradox, of course, in any of this is anytime you have a sense of community, you're going to have a sense of boundary about it. Not anyone can come in and go out, so the the upside of the individualism that's part of you're coming back to the optimism is that people are allowed to come in and exit out of this lightly formed community that that we have in in most American cases. Okay. In India, it's much tougher to break into this community. Mm. Okay. You go there, you visit, you spend a couple of years, you are never absorbed into it. You're still seen as this foreign, big, tall, white guy. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I'll probably cook you, try to cook you chicken every day. (laughs) You know? So, (laughs) like when I take my students, when I take my friends, in fact, my parents respond to it, their idea of an outsider. So, I think this is the other side of it, which is you, you, like you see in Europe too, by the way, which is Traditionally constituted communities over a long period of time, they don't change their food habits that quickly okay? But their food habits are also not individualized. They're collective. So if you're a vegetarian uh, Bengali Indian, you will stay that uh, in most cases, okay? Mm -hmm. and Or if you're a fish eating Bengali, you will stay that and not have, for instance, beef, for instance, right? Mm -hmm. And, And so it's a much more traditional culture. The upside of traditional culture is this. It allows you the rules from outside. So you become a person by following the rules, in individualized culture, you become a person in some ways by having your individual rules, and that's the. Par- by the way, that's uh, a sociologist M. L. Durkheim, one of the founders of sociology. The paradox he was looking at was this: Why do people, affluent people in developed societies, commit more suicide than poor people in poor societies who obviously suffer a lot more? What was his response? His response was this: so the the social glue that so we we lose that we lose that with, social glue with development with uh, with with kind of uh, economic development with urbanization with mobility that mm-hmm. very thing that is part of the american dream both upward mobility and lateral spatial geographical mobility is also what creates isolation so in some ways tony bourdain's kind of a tragic uh, case of a beautiful person is is that uh, in a sense his uh, kind of suicidal tendencies, now post facto looking back at it, is linked to probably the isolation and the larger symptom of a culture and may have nothing specifically to do about his omnivorousness of food other than maybe an attempt to kind of connect. And there was this hunger in him. I think he was very successful precisely because he would go to places and like no one else, connect with people. Mm-hmm. And for him, food was the way to connect with mm-hmm. people. And so it was this desperate search for sociality and connection in a highly individualized world and especially in a celebrity world where you can no longer hear yourself think anymore, right? Mm-hmm. You're so surrounded by sidekicks and people who are making a living out of you and they're, they're doing it by affirming whatever you want to say. It's not real relationships always check you and mm-hmm. limit you, you know? Mm-hmm. And pandering relationships, kind of, you're surrounded, the more power and more money you have in the social world, you're surrounded by more pandering relationships, including Uh, what is good to eat, and your judgments about things. So I see them as almost like an exemplar of what is beautiful about American culture and the price we pay for some of that beauty. Uh, I was uh, uh, listening to Mother Jaffrey recently, and she said, well, Americans have to go to war against you to love your food. And it's a very interesting kind of a point what what it means is this he, she never elaborated on it, and I think what it uh, uh, what it like Vietnamese food or say Japanese food or Korean food uh the the foods that Americans have been fascinated about are the are the foods of the people where american especially soldiers have been have been uh, placed and have engaged with that culture and then have come back home mm-hmm. and brought that culture by the way, one of the most uh, understudied, I think the radical place of adaptation of new taste is the menu of the military. Okay. That changes sooner than any of the other fads. What do you mean? Like uh, uh, pastas um, um, and uh, uh, Thai food and Vietnamese food on the first time we saw in some ways uh, was in the American military mess which is people going out, coming back with the memory of this food, and Italian food, the Second World War, played a very important role, okay? And so this engagement with difference in this intimate one, which is basically your two appetites, right? When you're at war, you're a man, young man, okay? Your two appetites drives you from kind of going mad, basically. One is food, the other is sex. And those two things are absolutely crucial to when you place men in foreign context. So like that's why, by the way, Americans came to like Thai food. The US never went to war directly with Thailand, but the Vietnam War led to R&R in Thailand because mm. the Thai, Thai government was a pro-American government. So American soldiers would go to Bangkok and that's where they discovered uh, kind of Thai, Thai food, food and Thai women, okay? And they come back to the US and they bring that hunger back. Okay, and that is what, in some ways, say Thai immigrants uh, were, in some ways, uh, kind of cooking Thai food to p- feed the American palate. And the Vietnamese, in this case, the Vietnamese as a group, the Thai as a group, it carry their um, mm, the skills and the ingredients back, and and in some ways use the Chinatown networks to get the produce that are missing. Okay, uh, so Galangal or, you know, or, or uh, Lemongrass. And there's a very interesting network, Chinatown Network, which is an old Chinese network. Okay, where they had to produce their own ingredients, various kinds of greens and bitter melon, etc., which goes back, say, from Chinatown here to Florida, the more tropical uh, growing Mm -hmm. parts of Florida, where all kinds of ethnic farmers, who can be Korean and Chinese, are growing these ingredients for the Chinatown market. Mm. And the Chinatown market then becomes the mechanism which brings together the aspirations of Americans who are coming back and want to taste this, and the livelihoods and memories and lives of immigrant groups that are feeding them. Mm -hmm. In this case, the Vietnamese or Thai, and it'll change a little. It's changing now. I mean, think about, say, in New York City. I wouldn't find most of the Asian or Latin American ingredients that I want without Korean greengrocers. Huh. Okay, And so the, the few thousand Korean green grocers are basically the linchpin of the New York City urban system of providing me ingredients that are unusual and too small in quantities for a large grocery store. Your mm-hmm. work on grocery stores, is kind of a good example about mm-hmm. it, right? Lessons from it. So they occupy this niche. Okay. Where I get my green chilies, I I you go get across your this. ethnic food. Exactly. You get your <laughs> ethnic food in these places, right? And so they usually are these groups of people who are slight outsiders and who have a have their finger on. This kind of range of demand that is not large enough for a large grocery store with a very high rent to pay for. Okay, so much smaller. You'll always often find these uh, Korean green grocers in these small, not high-rise buildings, but small buildings, old buildings, where the rents are a little more kind of kind of manageable, and they are. So these. So the, the answer to that question. These cross-ethnic networks. Okay, are people who are not at the heart of the American food system are used by incoming group, like me, for instance, where I want my Thai chili, you know? Where I want my, uh, say, what is that? The um, shallots, for instance, mm-hmm. okay? Fresh ginger, ginger root. When I first came to the US, ginger you can only find is kind of powder, ginger powder for yeah, baking, yeah, yeah. you know? Never fresh uh, ginger root. And so these, I I got it through the Korean greengrocers who are also supplying, okay, other networks, the mm-hmm. Chinese networks. They're part of, linked to the Chinese network, linked to the Mexican network, and And who are also growing these produce, Mm. they know how to grow these produce, and they know the context of it and how they can be used. So there's almost like this alternative ethnic network of uh, producers, uh, wholesalers, and retailers that supply the American city and allow new immigrant groups to, in some ways, make an analogous version of their food that they feed themselves with, their memories with, and feed Americans with.
3: bottom line for me in all this is the fundamental fact that food brings us together. Our ape ancestors ate in solitude, masticating raw vegetation for hours every day. Once we began cooking our food, we ate together, having shared in the work of hunting and gathering food and the work of cooking. It changed us. As Dr. Ray noted, Anthony Bourdain used food to connect himself and all of us to the world and its people. Ray's advice on the way to eat is solid. Eat whatever you want. Drink whatever you want. In moderation. But always with other people. Thank you, Dr. Chris Ray. Check out his most recent book, The Ethnic Restaurateur. For more on curries from India to Southeast Asia, have a look at the chapter called Curry in my new book, also called From Scratch. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks with another bonus interview while we put together Season 2 of From Scratch with me, your host... Michael Ruhlman.
0: Right rug flooring.